0: And so here we are uh, in Matthew 13. It will be um, the verses uh, beginning with verse 31. We're speaking again as a reminder about the kingdom of God. This is Jesus entering into a a pericope or section of Scripture in which he addresses people through parable, that is through image, through uh, metaphor, through analogy. Because what he's doing is he's giving deep wisdom on actually the way the world will play out. He is giving prophetic oracle and he is lining himself up or rather standing toe-to-toe with all the prophets of old. This is a very common matter of speech, a manner of speaking that was done through all the great prophets from Isaiah to Ezekiel and Daniel. And Jesus is standing on all of that and saying he is the greatest prophet. He is wiser than Solomon and he has these uh, parables for us so that we would meditate upon them and see and have the wisdom to hear. He always ends by saying, he who has an ear to hear, listen to this. Grab the interpretation, and understand it from beginning to end. And so here we have Jesus. In verse 31, we're told that he put another parable before them. After he already spoke of the parable of the and the weeds, and the wheat. He put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make a nest in its branches. He who has... I'm sorry. uh, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour, till it was all leavened. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden from the foundation of the world. Skipping down after an interpretation. In verse 44, he goes on to mention parable of the hidden treasure. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. And the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of a fine pearl, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. So there's a series there of four short, distinct parables. And unlike all the others, Jesus gives no interpretation to these ones. He just lets them sit there. It's almost an invitation to say, this is for you now. Particularly for us even here in the modern church to say, I've interpreted a few parables for you. Now here's a few shorter ones. Meditate on these. What is this? What does this mean? He who has ear to hear, let him hear. The whole point of these parables having to do with hiding things. The the parables are actually about hidden things, but the parables themselves are hidden things. Interpretation actually isn't even given for us today. They're hidden. They're secret. They're inconspicuous. And so we see in these four parables, there's two and two, which match in some way. To say the first couple deal with An inconspicuous beginning that ends with great and tremendous influence. And the other two parables dealing with treasure and pearls have to do with being inconspicuous. They're hidden. Where's that pearl? Where's that treasure? But then it ends with great wealth, tremendous, tremendous riches. Jesus put these parables together before us today because you and I know, we know enough to know that these are the things that we very much struggle with our whole life, which is essentially wealth and influence. In our varying degrees, maybe you're not one of the most wealthiest people in the world, but you always would be a little happier to have more. And maybe... No one's trying to get you on late-night talk show hosts, But you would wish that others would respect you, honor you, and value your opinion. You'd have some influence. Some influence, some money, and they usually go together. And here we have with these parables, those two exact things. Because that's what they were looking for for him. If you are the Messiah, they said, show us a sign. After all the miracles and wonders he did. What are they looking for? This. If you're the king, if you're the guy, start doing that stuff. Start doing the big stuff. Start being very wealthy and influential. And start exerting your will and doing your kingdom. If you're going to be the king of the Messiah of the Jews to come, start doing it. Right? You can see how he put this. And so Jesus plops these parables there and says, Your frustration, your misunderstanding of me is here for you to see now. You misunderstand me because you misunderstand my Father's kingdom. You misunderstand the whole purpose of all the prophecies of old and the plan of God's redemption. And so he, God, Jesus, can unlock that wisdom through these parables to give them the right understanding or interpretation. That it is about power and influence and wealth. But in God's perspective, in his plan and process. So, perhaps you've heard, maybe 15 or so years ago, You might have heard the name Bernie Madoff, right? He kind of made a big deal in the news. Uh, It was in 2008 he was caught uh, for the largest Ponzi scheme in the history of the world. So that's how you know you really did it. It was $65 billion of corrupted money stolen. What's amazing about this story is it wasn't... With Bernie Madoff, he was tricking the best. He was an investor in New York City. And everyone that invested with him, a lot of people that did, were also investors in New York City. So they kind of know what they're doing. Granted, he took a lot of other people's personal retirements and, uh, you know, just people who just trusted him. But there are a lot of people that thought he really knew what he was doing. The story of Bernie Madoff is insightful because he was all about wealth and influence. See, in the early 60s, he started his own opening trading company. He was a young guy who actually had a middle-class background from Queens, but he was very ambitious And wanted to do something with his life. Everyone says the investigation happened after the fact. They start to create this biography for a person. Who does something like this? Oh, just an average person with an above average IQ that wants to do something like this. You and me, maybe, in different circumstances. In our sin, apart from the grace of Christ. The whole point of Bernie's life is that he went and said in 1960 he would open a trading company. And it was doing well for a while. He was making good investments. A couple years later, there was a little bit of a crisis in the 60s with a Japanese market or whatnot, and he wasn't able to give back returns for his investors, those who actually were looking for maybe like a 15% return, which he was doing pretty well regularly, everyone thought, which was amazing. So he invested, but he lost $3,000 back in 1962. And instead of going to his investors and explaining that they suffered a loss this year, he borrowed money from his father-in-law and then lied to those who were with him and said that he got out in time and he's a great investor and he saved them a lot of money. And that was the beginning of history. And so he started investing and getting more clients. And what happened, he began to develop a very good reputation as one of the most savvy New York-type business investors in the whole world. And he was on all the alphabet stations, ABC, MSNBC, all of it. He was the guy. And that's a great thing. He loves it. This whole time, it's a lie. As people were investing with him, his sons worked with him. Actually did trading on one side. He did all the investing. The trading company was real. His sons had no idea he was tricking everybody. What he did was an absolute Ponzi scheme. A Ponzi scheme in the sense that you rob Peter to pay Paul. You take people's money from here and give it to other people's money over here. But no one actually invested anything. It just translated hands from one person to the other. And he did this with some of the most savvy Business-type people in the world just straight-up sent them letters and lied about all these statements. They didn't have any of that money. He tricked them all. They, they did an investigation once they caught him because he actually turned himself in. And they speculated that in the 1980s when he really started to do this, he funneled all this money from other people, put it in a big checking account for billions of dollars and just would write people little checks as they wanted to make withdrawals and kept all the extra money for himself, never invested one ounce of it. People lost their whole life savings because what drew him out was the 2008 crisis where everybody wanted to withdraw their money. And then he said he had to talk to his sons and pulled them into his personal library and said, his sons, he worked with them his whole life. They've been trading a good reputable business on the other side of the business. He's been doing investments. Not one of them are real, for all those years, from the '60s on. And he says, to his sons, this was all a Ponzi scheme. Him and his wife tried to commit suicide. They failed. At the end of the year, he was brought before the court, sentenced to 150 years in prison. He just died last year in prison. The reporter summed it up this way. What is the reason? The simplest explanation is monumental selfishness. If all had gone as planned, he would have kept everybody happy. His strongest motivation for as long as he was around was to accept approbation. After that, nothing mattered. They're saying the reason he did all this for multiple decades took everybody's life savings, lied on national television, presented himself, propped himself up as the guy who can read the markets because he just wanted people to approve of him. He just wanted the wealth and the influence. That's it. That's all he wanted. And he destroyed everything. Our problem Is that we want the same because we were made in the image of God and we do have great dignity and honor. And so you should want that within reason. The other problem is sin. Going outside of that limit, trying to find influence and wealth and honor apart from Jesus Christ, apart from what God defines as your humanity, your dignity. Your crown-like state, Psalm 8, that you are the crown of creation. That God has made you higher than anything else. He's put his image on you, your ability to discern right and wrong, your ability to be judge, kings, rulers. That's what makes us different than all the animals. That's why Paul says at the end of creation, we will judge angels, not Deer will judge angels. Beavers will judge angels. There's something about us. We have this moral aptitude, this ability to discern left from right and right from wrong. And the temptation was taken on at the tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And our dignity, we have fallen from the glory of God in that. But we were made to be kings. We were made to be queens. And in redemption, in the new kingdom to come, we will have that. But we look for it now. We want to grab it now. Jesus is tempted in the wilderness by Satan. Bow before me now and you will give all the kingdoms of this world to be yours. And he does not bow. He holds off. He doesn't put his hand on the tree. He doesn't go out to claim the power for himself. He lives a sacrificial life unto death and then is crowned with glory and honor. You see. And we must follow that path. And in this parable he lays out, you misinterpret the kingdom. You seek to find wealth and influence and power now, and that will be your death. That is the first lie of old. That is the sin of all sins. God, the real problem of it all, is that God should receive all glory and honor. From him, through him, and to him, were created all things. He created all things in himself, and they were made for him and by him. He should receive all glory and honor every day, and he does not receive it. So the real problem, first off, is not our own dignity and honor and the vanity of our life or existential crisis or whatever it is that we feel we're missing in our life. The reality is every morning we should, in the perfect world, get up, if our souls are right, and look to the world and say, where is God's honor? Where is his glory? Where is the fear and reverence and love that he deserves? It doesn't happen. Now that is really the problem. Where is the kingdom of God? And Jesus seeks to answer that problem with this solution. That it is hidden. And it is small. It is insignificant. But it won't remain that way for long. He put another parable before them, this parable of the mustard seed. And there he says, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man sowed in a field... That grain of mustard seed is the smallest of all garden plants. Maybe it isn't scientifically for the purpose of Jesus' parable. It is. It's very small. Very small seed. Hold it in your hand. A gentle wind, would you'd lose it. It'd just blow right away. Where is the kingdom of God? It's Jesus. The king walking around with a few fishermen in Galilee. And no one cares. No one cares. Until he almost threatened a little bit of wealth and influence, and then they tried to kill him. But that's it, a grain, a mustard seed. But when it's fully grown, it'll be the largest of garden plants, and the birds will come and nest in his branches. This insignificance, this inconsequential beginning of the kingdom, Jesus explains is exactly how it should work. They misunderstand him and don't interpret his ministry because they don't understand mustard seeds. They don't understand how God intends to rule the world. He rules the world this way through a very small beginning. But he ends it, and this is the echo. This is the thing not to miss. He says, when this tree is grown, there will be birds of every kind nesting in its branches. That's it. That is an echo. This is Jesus speaking parables. This is Jesus the prophet. In Daniel 4, you find places in scripture where there's a lot of talk of birds and trees and kingdoms. Daniel 4, a vision comes upon this man, this king of the Babylonians, Nebuchadnezzar. He is given a dream of a tree in the midst of all the earth that grew strong and its top reached to the heaven and it reached out to all the earth. And then an angel comes by and decrees that the tree should be cut down and destroyed. And he awakes and he's bothered by the dream. And he goes to interpreters. He goes to his wise men. And he goes to Daniel particularly and says, what does the dream mean? And Daniel interprets and says, the tree is you. You will be cut down, O King Nebuchadnezzar, until you acknowledge that the Lord is king over all kings. And he installs and builds up and tears down whoever he wills. And you will be given the beast, the mind of a beast. You will be degraded and deformed. We're told that that tree grew, though, so that all the birds in the earth nested in its branches. So you see a tree with birds nesting. And that was about a Babylonian kingdom, a real legitimate kingdom that is historically found in our world and ruled most of the known world at the time. So don't spiritualize this mustard seed. Do you see what Jesus did? This tree is going to grow and birds will nest in the branches. He's echoing back. This tree is going to be like a Babylonian kingdom. But it's more than that. Even with Ezekiel 17, we're told that there's another story about trees and birds and kingdoms. But this time it's a parable, literally a parable from Ezekiel. As Jesus is giving a parable about trees and birds and kingdoms. Do you think he's doing that on purpose? He goes back to Ezekiel 17 where there's a parable of riddles put forward. That there's two great birds, one from Babylon and one from Egypt. And these great birds, these eagles come and they pluck the top of the cedars of Lebanon, of Jerusalem. That is an image for them taking Babylon, coming in and taking all the kings and the educated, the elites of the Jerusalem government as they destroyed Jerusalem, taking them back to Babylon to run their own government. And then they are planted into Babylon as being a very small vine, which once was a Jerusalem cedar, a very powerful kingdom of Jerusalem, is turned down to be a low-reaching vine. Do you see the images of why Jesus is doing this? Kingdoms are like plants. There's very great cedars. There's conquered kingdoms that are like small little vines. They're very humble, low to the ground. Well, those vines would reach out and try to make a covenant with Egypt. They'd have a big war. Everyone's destroyed. All these images are just laid in everything Jesus is saying. If we don't know these images, we miss it as just that parable. That little parable within a little picture of a frame. But reality this parable, Jesus is tapping in to all of the oracles of old. That he's saying you're missing the kingdom because you don't understand Ezekiel 17. You don't understand Daniel 4. That I am fulfilling those prophecies that you think I'm not fulfilling. I am getting there. There will be a great tree. Because Ezekiel 17 goes on to say, after all this, 1722, a new tree will come and be planted. God says, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty cedars of Jerusalem and Israel and set it on the mountain and it will bear a branch and will produce great fruit and become a noble cedar. I'm going to take one of the the noble people from Jerusalem, someone from the line of David. I'm going to take him, and I'm going to plant him back. And it's going to grow. It's going to become a noble cedar, a big tree again, not a little vine. It's going to be a great big tree again. And then the next verse, it says, Ezekiel 17, 23, And under this tree under it will dwell every kind of bird in shade of its branches birds of every sort will make nest do you see why jesus said that do you see what he's saying that's me i'm being planted now i'm just a little root I'm just a sprig, just a, just a little, tiny little baby tree. I'm being planted here in Jerusalem. I will give out my life. I will sow my seed into the soil like grain is harvested and falls. But when that seed comes back, it will bring a huge harvest. I'm the first fruits of the many to come after me. You and I are born. He is the first fruit and we are born after him. Do you see all of that laid out here? That there's a very small seed laid, but then a tree is going to grow. The kingdom of God will expand. And then he says, as all the old prophecies say, birds will come. Birds from every nation will come and find place in these branches. All the kingdoms of the earth, all the nations of the world will be inside this tree. Inside the kingdom of Jerusalem. Because of the Messiah. Because of the mustard seed that was sown. That is, Jesus saying, the very inconspicuous, very inconsequential beginnings and with tremendous and influential results. He told another parable and he says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, a woman that hid three measures of flour until it was all leavened. Three measures of flour is measured out to be around 50 pounds of dough. What they would do is they would take a previous made batch of dough that was old and fermented and they would put it inside the new batch of dough. That fermentation would expand. That would be the expansion of the leaven to make the new batch of bread. And every time they made bread, they kept an old piece back, let it get old and fermented and put it into the new piece. How amazing is that when you think of what was the old covenant and all these prophecies and the new covenants coming with Jesus. But that leaven goes throughout the whole bread. 50 pounds, they say, would make uh, enough bread for 100 people. You see see the expansion? You see how it starts inconsequential? You look at that lump of dough. You can't find the leaven. It's not in there. It's not in there for you to see. It's hidden. It's inconspicuous. It's not accounted for. The world doesn't see it. The world doesn't value it. But once it gets in the oven, you can't ignore that much bread, enough to feed 100 people straight up. This is the image of the kingdom. It's starting small. It doesn't look important. It will be impossible to ignore at some point in time, at some point like today, and even further into the future. This is the idea of leaven being influential. We think of this usually negatively, and so oftentimes it will come up in church where there will be a particular... um, Concern, where someone has um, a notorious, well, sin. Just a sin that's well known to the whole church. And unlike most churches almost everywhere, um, no one will do anything about it. You see, the, the biblical principle of church discipline is like this. See, leaven in scripture is used for the idea of Positive or negative, but the principle is influence. Leaven gets into everything. Once it's in one part of the lump of dough, the whole thing expands and fills. Paul says it this way, particularly in 1 Corinthians 5. Leaven can also be a negative thing of influence. was a Corinthian perversion and notorious public sin where a man was re- having physical relations with his father's wife. Paul says not to associate with someone like that, anyone who is sexually immoral and bears the name brother, right? He said to deliver such a person over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so he could save his soul for the day of the Lord. That is excommunication, moving someone outside of the church out of love for them, reclaiming them for the kingdom, saying you are really not a true disciple of Christ. If you can live in this sin and not turn away from this sin, evidence is objective reality that we can best see as humans is that the Spirit of God is not inside of you. You don't fear God. You live in gross, open sin, and you're not ashamed at all. We have to move you out of the church, and the reason he gives for that is leaven. He says, don't you know? Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? If we as a church Take in sin and let it be publicly known to everybody. And me as a pastor or other elders in the church don't do anything about it. What does it do? The whole culture, everything is, oh, we preach about sin, but we really don't think it's that big of a deal. Every sermon I ever preached would be a lie. Everything I say would be under the thing of the well-known fact that this is just a show. He doesn't really believe that. They're not addressing that at all. That, that's the leaven. That's the expansion. That's where it, even though all our words could be right, we actually don't really think God is holy, and we don't really love him. Even though we'll come here, raise our hands, and say, Lord, you're holy, and I love you. But we won't actually get the leaven out. So leaven is very influential, for good or bad. Jesus' word here is that it goes the other way, too. I am making a kingdom. I'm putting leaven in something that once it starts expanding, you won't be able to contain it. I'm doing something with my Holy Spirit. And I'm filling believers. And they will be infected. Infected with righteousness and holiness. And godliness and joy and sanctity and sacrificial love and giving. They will be light. They will be good. They will be salt to the whole world. They will leaven everything. It will produce hundreds of loaves. And no one would have even known that it happened from a first century carpenter's son. It doesn't seem important. But all of history is riding on this. That the reason history continues is this. That this is the whole point of the gospel. To leaven the whole world with righteousness. Influences of the glory of God in all the world. The positive influences of the kingdom. This is another influence that cannot be undone. This beautiful prophecy. I love Isaiah 9. We quote it in Christmas. Now I'm going to quote it here. And you tell me if you hear it differently. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Of the increase, not just this plateauing, but the ever-increasing dominion of Jesus Christ. Not just for a baby in a manger. The baby in the manger is the mustard seed. The baby in the manger is the leaven that's planted. But of his increase, of his dominion, it will expand and expand in the oven oven of God's world history in which the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The prophecy says, and don't worry about it, because I'm going to do it. It's not going to depend upon you. And the sermon series is what? Be surprised. Surprised by the Holy Spirit. What he accomplishes. He will. He will accomplish what he said. And so then he transitions Jesus to speak of a whole other aspect of parables. That deal with wealth that is inconspicuous. But tremendously valuable. He speaks of hidden treasure. That again is not seen not understood, treasure in a field, that a man found and covered up. And then, for the joy, for the joy set before him, he sold everything he had. Do you see the gospel in that? Do you understand what he just said? If you are not compelled to give everything to Jesus, you don't understand the kingdom. These parables for the purpose of understanding what is the kingdom? What is it when you say, I believe the gospel? Is there a penny in your pocket? Is there a lace in your shoe that is not Jesus? It was for joy. What what would cause you to pay everything for the gift that is free? That is, we're saved by the grace of Jesus. You do not buy your salvation. You do not get to earn that but you pay everything for it. Why is that? Love, You see, for joy, not compulsion. It was joy. Do you see the beauties of Jesus Christ? Do you see the treasure for what He is? He's a hidden treasure. You walk right past Him in the field. Isaiah says in Isaiah 53 two that He did not have form or fashion or beauty that we would desire Him. He wasn't supposed to look good. He wasn't supposed to draw your eye. He hides Himself for those who would love the true city of God of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. And if you find that, If you see what he did on the cross, all of a sudden it's joy. Everything that I have is yours. I give it to you all in praise. You're worthy of it all. And it was a good deal. Consider the reality of the parable, of the pearl. It's one thing to find treasure. Of course, there's no banks back then and people try to keep their money safe. They dig a big hole in a random field and hopefully no one else finds it. And so you walk past maybe someone's life savings without knowing. Of course, it was a lot easier, more likely to maybe find buried treasure back then. I wouldn't want to put it with Bernie Madoff, but maybe you should dig it in the ground. The pearl doesn't make any sense, you see. You can sell all you have to get a field that has more money than all you have. Pearl. It's beautiful. It's valuable. We're told that he sold all he had. He sold all that he had and bought that pearl, this merchant. All? Where will you sleep? If it's everything you have, where will you sleep? So you have a pearl now. Where will you eat? What will you wear? Now you have a pearl and nothing else. If you sold all you have to get this pearl, the shit on your back and the pearl in your hand, what else would you want? See, the beauty of it is the pearl, it's just beautiful. Do you see? Like, it's not necessarily practical, but it's so beautiful. The kingdom of God and the city that comes were told in Revelation that there will be 12 pearls around each of its 12 gates that enter into the new Jerusalem. It's just gorgeous. I tell you don't be anxious about your life. What you will eat or what will you would drink or what you would put on is not the life more than food in the body, more than clothing. Therefore, do not be anxious about what you eat or what you drink. Gentiles seek after these. Those Gentiles who don't know anything about the real kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And everything else will be added to you. Do you see the pearl? If I could have that pearl, I don't need food. If I could have that pearl, I don't need clothes. I don't need shoes. I need to have the righteousness of Christ. I need to have him. Jesus Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2, two. He is that hidden treasure. If I can have him, if I seek him, his kingdom, his righteousness in this world. That is, the kingdom of God is the righteousness of God in joy and peace mediated by the Holy Spirit. Romans 14. Now, if you make your whole life about that one thing, I want God's righteousness, his fame, his glory, his peace, the joy of the Holy Spirit in my life and everyone else's life around me. That that you're not going to be thinking about where you get your next meal. You're not going to be thinking about anything. You're going to be thinking about pearls. But the promise is, if you seek first the kingdom of God, that precious pearl, he'll add everything else you need. But you won't, because you have to lose your life. You could lose your life seeking influence. You could lose your life seeking riches. You could lose your life seeking false ease and comfort. But it doesn't matter, because you're going to lose your life. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses life for my sake will find it. You're going to lose your life. So what are you going to do while you're losing your life? Jim Elliot, the missionary, Ecuadorian natives, they killed him as he went to go preach the gospel to them. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep. To gain what he cannot lose. We are all dying men and women. It is all of the kingdom. We'll close with Colossians. It says, as Paul says, Jesus Christ, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is him, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I invite us to pray as we close and consider that, as we cannot lose anything that we do not store up in heaven. Lord, we pray, Father, that we do not store up our treasures here on this earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. Lord, we put our treasures in heaven. Lord, we have walked past the field. We have stumbled across the treasure, the beauties of Christ. Lord, we pray that you would show us your beauties in greater ways. Let us not hold on to anything that is down here on this world. But Lord, let us use everything you provide for us to create your kingdom here in this world. As your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. Lord, we pray and ask for your grace and mercy in this. Lord, we pray that we would be considering the long-term effects of the kingdom that is to come. Our families and our generations and our children's children, institutions and godly things in all society to serve men and glorify your name, Lord. We pray that we would be living to see this day the kingdom on earth. Lord, and we ask that you would provide all our needs according to this. As we seek your kingdom, Lord, you'll give us everything else. And we trust you in that. In Jesus' name, amen.